Good morning, everybody. Last week, Pastor Chad was up here preaching, and uh, man, it was such a good word he had. And one of the, he was in Psalm 85, and in verse 6, it said, Will, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy and loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us salvation. And uh, it actually says, Grant us your salvation. Pastor Chad has been having these messages. If you've been paying attention to them, they've just been anointed for this time. They've been prophetic. They've been the right words. And if we're listening, God's trying to teach us something. And that whole word last week that he had from Psalm 85 about turning to the Lord and and pressing into the Lord and how he wants to revive us. And even when he went into the uh, prodigal son and the prodigal son going away, and realizing there's only one place to be, and that was with his dad. Right? He was like, Dad, I'll do whatever. And uh, before he could even tell his dad he would do whatever, Dad restored him. All he had to do was turn back around. And uh, so I've been praying for a while about this, and I know our prayer team's been praying about this very thing. But all over the country, you're seeing people praying about God reviving this nation, about God getting us to turn back to who we should be, and we've actually, in a prayer group, been praying this for probably about five or six years, that God would just return us, that God would do whatever it need He needs to do to wake us up. And that's a dangerous prayer. When you start praying for God to do whatever is needed to get our attention, you're asking God to do whatever is needed to get our attention. And sometimes it takes a pandemic. Sometimes it takes craziness in politics. Sometimes it takes our country looking like it's a mess before we stop and say, hey, uh, what's wrong? So I, I, I've been praying and I've been praying, and all week the Holy Spirit's just been welling up in me as I've been studying and praying and reading old notes. And, and I really don't, I don't want to say I don't care what you guys get out of this. I hope you get a lot out of it. I'm going to tell you what, I got a lot out of it, so that's, that's good for me. And so I'm, I'm hoping you get a lot from this. And I, I woke up this morning, and, and God said, hey, I got some different scriptures for you. Get rid of your old ones. So my scriptures have changed, and uh, so we're going to get some of this new together. So uh, I'm going to start out with prayer just so I can get out of the way and just God can really speak to us. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are, Lord. I thank you that... You want to get our attention, that you have a plan for us. God, I thank you that there is far more of you than we see, Lord. There's far more you want to do than we see, God. And I pray that you're far bigger than everything around us, Lord. I ask that you would just speak your words today, Lord, that I would get out of your way, Lord. And you'd be the one to speak directly to our hearts. Prepare us, Lord, for what you're going to speak, and let us receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start out in John 14, verse 12. And in John 14, verse 12, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That is a scripture that if we're looking at it, and it says, truly, truly, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I'm wondering, 
why I'm not walking up to somebody, spitting on my finger, touching their eyes, and they're getting eyesight. I'm wondering whenever I'm praying for somebody why they're not getting the gift of healing immediately like he did. I'm wondering why his faith when he walks out is a lot different than my faith. I'm wondering that whenever he spoke, people said, that man speaks with authority. And I'm wondering why I'm not always speaking with authority. You know, sometimes people are like, wow, that's anointed. You're anointed in that. And and there's a season of that. There's a time when we speak that people see something different in us. But his was everywhere, right? And he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Greater works. Why are we not seeing these greater works? If you haven't asked yourself that question, it's a big question. Why are we not seeing greater things than Jesus was doing? Blows my mind that he said we can see it. Blows my mind that he said we can do it. Breaks my heart that we're not. I just, I want that. I want to be doing what Jesus was doing. And he goes on and he says, says, greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may glorify be glorified in his son. So anything we do will be in his name. It will always be in his name. It's not because of us, it's because of Jesus. But still, if I say, you know, let that arm grow back in Jesus' name, for some reason it probably won't just happen. There's something missing. There's a reason why we're, we're not seeing what we, we want to see. If you ask anything, ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So if we ask in his name and we keep his commandments, we're actually with him, he will honor that. Now, I do want you to understand that he did not say that if you're trying to get away with some stuff or if you're trying to figure out what you can do and what you can't do, He didn't say that. Because oftentimes we're like, well, I think it's okay if I do this. Instead of actually pursuing what God wants us to do without actually pursuing what Jesus has for us. How many times do you wake up in the morning, you pray and say, Lord, what would you have me do today? Instead of praying and saying, hey, Lord, would you be with me at work? Lord, would you be with me in this that I'm doing? Lord, would you honor this? Lord, would you bless this? Do we ever just stop and pray and say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Right? Maybe he says, hey, I don't want you to go to work today, actually. It's a scary thought. I don't think he's going to say that, but he could. He may say, I actually want you to drive down this road, and I got something for you there. But we don't usually just stop and pray and ask what God has for us, what Jesus has for us, what he's trying to speak to us and command us. We usually ask him to honor what we're already doing. And he says, this is the part I want you to get because there's a lot of teaching against this very part. And it says, 
He will give you another helper to be with you for how long? It says forever. It doesn't say for a time period. It doesn't say the helper would come for a season. It doesn't say the helper will be here as long as the apostles of Jesus Christ are here. It says the helper will be here forever. Forever means never ending. Forever means it doesn't stop. Forever means forever. And we've got to remember that. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. Now I want you to hear the way that's worded. It says, you know him for he dwells with you. At this moment, the Holy Spirit was dwelling with them. Then he said, and will be in you, right? When we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit is with us, right? We get that welling of the Holy Spirit, we get something. But then he says, there's going to be a time when he's in you. He's going to fill you, is what that says. It's going to be filled with you. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a time. I imagine in their mindset, they're just like, okay, just like we do usually and pass right on by it. You know, they don't quite grasp that thought process when he first says that, but there's going to be a time whenever he will be in you. Then it goes on and it said, I will not leave you as orphans. That's the God I know. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they stepped away from God. They were the ones who ran away. They weren't abandoned. He actually made a lot of provisions for them. He looked out for them. But they weren't abandoned. They were the ones who chose to leave his presence. And then Jesus came back and said, I no longer want you to be away from my presence. I want you guys to be with me. And we know he spent time bringing more and more people, calling them to be with him. And what kind of good God would abandon you at that moment? He says he wouldn't. He said, I'll never leave you as orphans. Right? So there's got to be a way that we're not orphaned. And it comes down to this Holy Spirit, this helper. He says, um, says, I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father. Listen to this part. This, if you grasp what he says here, this is, man, this is amazing. It says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. If we are in Jesus Christ on that day, and He is in the Father, that means we are also in the Father. Right? That means we are dwelling in the Father if we are actually dwelling in Christ, and He is dwelling in us. Which would probably mean things should look a little different. If I'm truly dwelling in Jesus Christ, my life should look like I'm dwelling in God, the Father. I should be doing what the Father is doing. Because Jesus Christ said, I only do the things I see my Father doing. Whenever he's healing people, it's only because God's already showed him. God the Father showed him what he was going to do. And Jesus walks over and boom, healed. He didn't stop and pray with the man. He said, you are healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. He didn't beg. 
Because God the Father already showed him what he was going to do. That's a whole different way of praying. That whenever you abide in Jesus Christ and you abide in God, then you see what God wants to do. Too often we're out there trying to figure it out and we're doing stuff and we're like, God, would you do this? I mean, he loves us enough that sometimes he just blesses that, right? He's just like, man, you still don't get it, but I'm going to bless that prayer. I love you. right? Because he does love us. And he knows we don't always get it. We're learning. We, uh, we're flawed people. But if we abide in him, we abide in the Father, and we should be seeing those very things that Jesus saw. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. These are powerful statements. These are things we should long for. These are things we should sit around and be like, God, I want that so bad. These are things like Pastor Chad said, whenever you're sitting there and you're like, why is this not here? We should just, it should eat at us that we want to return to the Father, that we want to be with the Father, that, that we want Him to revive us and bring that life back to us. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, he didn't say, if anybody keeps my word, then he'll love me. He said, if you love me, you will keep my word. Salvation still comes by grace, and we receive that salvation through grace. But if we truly love Jesus, we'll do what he says to do. We will follow his word. We'll also desire to know that word so we can do it. goes on, and he says... uh, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These are some deep thoughts, but they're not that, they're not that complex. Sometimes we make the Scripture a lot harder than they were. They're actually written for a sixth-grade mindset. Like about 11, 12-year-old mindset. And sometimes we make it really complicated, like you need a doctorate to figure this stuff out, but he's speaking right to you. Right? If we pursue him, fully pursue him, we are in him and he is in us and we are in the Father, therefore we will know what the Father wants to do. Simple concept. And we complicate it. Well, I need to wake up and I need to do this and I need to, I need to make sure I'm this way, I need to stop doing this. And he said, no. Pursue me, right? Want me. Seek me. Be with me, and that's it. He'll do the rest. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. How many people do you know that go out and do whatever they want, and then you're like, hey, I don't think that's right, and you're like, look, Jesus loves me anyway. Jesus may love you, but you don't love him. 
Right. He said, if you love him, you keep his word. If you love him, you keep his commandment. If you love him, you're trying to follow him. A lot of times we like for God to love us or to Jesus to love us, but we don't want to return it. And these are hard words, but these are what the Lord has been speaking to me, and I want everybody to feel the same conviction I did. Be convinced that you need him. Right? These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we can't do it on our own, but whenever we seek the Lord, when we want the Lord, when we desire the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, comes within us, and He helps us through this. Because you can't do it on your own. It's impossible. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So it's not just an unnatural peace like Pastor Chad has talked about a few weeks ago. It's a peace straight from the Lord, right, that I give to you. It's from the Lord. Not as the world gives do I give. I want you to remember that. This is a peace that he gives permanently. The world gives you something that's going to fade away. Jesus gives you something that lasts forever. It don't go away. He don't give like the world gives. And he doesn't give expecting something in return. We only do something in return because we love Him. Let your hearts be troubled. Neither, or let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So when you hear words like this, Jesus knew that it's one of those things where you're like, that's overwhelming. I can't do that. He knew that it's like, man, that is a big conquest. I don't know. And then He said, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Because he's already told us he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help us in it. Don't be worried, right? And then it goes down in verse 31, he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So he only did what the Father did, so the world knew that he loved the Father. He loved the Father, he already knew he loved the Father, the Father already knew what he, that he loved him. But it was those works that the world got to see, right? If Jesus never healed anybody, him and, the, him and the Father were still in love with one another. But it was those works that people got to see that understood he was walking in that authority. He seeked the Father. He didn't seek the works. He was able to do the works because he was with the Father and the Father showed him what to do. And he did it because he loved the Father. It's a concept. A big concept. So, Pastor Chad spoke, I want to say, about four weeks on American history. And uh, it was really cool. There's a lot of good stuff you can glean from what he taught on. And he talked about how America was different. And if you don't know yet, America is 100% different. See, in... 19, or in the 1730s and 40s, before we were even a nation, he talked about how we had a great awakening, right? And that something started happening different in America than had ever been seen. And historians talk about it as the great awakening was an emotional experience, 
right? They try to downplay what God started doing in America. It was different than anywhere else in the world because everywhere else in the world they followed God because it was rational to do so. They knew that they could see everything going on in the world like Chad had mentioned, and they knew there had to be a creator, right? There had to be something more. It's what Thomas Jefferson believed. It was what Benjamin Franklin believed. They believed there had to be a God because the world spoke enough to show them there was God, but they only believed in what they can grasp, what they could see. And then you had Jonathan Edwards come about, and he said, hey, no, there's so much more. Jonathan Edwards said, we have a God that wants a relationship with us. We have a God who wants more, right? We have a God who's more than just the person who created the world. He's the God of our salvation. He's the God of more. And then you had uh, George Whitfield who came along also, who was preaching in England. He comes back over to America, and they have this great revival. And as Pastor Chad pointed out, he spoke to 80% of the the population of the time. population was over a million people, and he spoke to 80% of them. He was the first celebrity in America, and people started realizing, wait a minute, there is more. And there starts being a change in America that they didn't have anywhere else because America started realizing there's more to God than just somebody we obey because we have to obey. They start seeing something different. I believe that's why we're set apart. I believe that's why we're different. Just like, and this is it's not biblical, this would be ethical. I don't know what you call it. It's, it's my word, I'm going to tell you, but I believe just as the Israelites were brought out of something and God began speaking to them and using them because they were set apart for God, I believe he did the same thing with America because he brought us out of a mess and set us apart for himself. We became different, right? And there starts being these truths that, that, he, that are being spoken in America. And, uh, and I know I'm going over a lot of what Pastor Chad spoke, but I need you to understand it to get to where I think we need to be. Okay? So then you go on in, in the 1800s. After we become a nation, you got the Second Great Awakening with James McGreedy and Charles Finney. Uh, Charles Finney, and then there's other revivals that start happening. And this, uh, there's all this is going to happen right before the 1900s. You have the Business Revival uh, or the Great Prayer Meeting Revival, which is Jeremiah uh, Lampier. And then you have the Civil War. In the Civil War, three hundred thousand men committed themselves to Christ during the Civil War because they knew there had to be something more than what they were seeing. 300,000 people, there's a revival during war because people knew there had to be more. And it was on both sides. And you're thinking like, eh, the South, you know, they were wrong. God loves us even when we're wrong. He will reveal himself to us even in our mess. And he did that. 300,000 men. That blows my mind that that could happen. Then you have the urban revival from, 80, uh, from 1875 to 1885, which was D.L. Moody. Many of us still like to hear his words and, and quotes and read his books. And D.L. Moody did a great work. There's people getting saved. Started in England and then it came here. And people all across the country are getting saved from the D.L. Moody preachings. And all their preachings were was how much we needed the Lord how much we needed the Lord, how we needed that. You know, it was no longer that God is just this omniant being that is in heaven looking down upon us and we should follow what he's doing. They realized the need for Christ. 
And everybody in America's wanting that. It's, it's spreading like wildfire. But then something changes. In 1901, right at the turn of the century, 1901. Bob, if I get this wrong, you correct me. But it, because uh, I know he studied the same stuff. 1901, there's a revival that breaks out in Welsh, in Wells. Oh, no. 1901 was the start of the Topeka revival. There's a man by the name of Charles Parham. Charles Parham and many others started realizing that not only does Scripture tell us that we need salvation, that we need Christ, but they realized Pentecost was real. And for some reason, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, even though they believed the Holy Spirit was still moving, nobody was speaking in tongues anymore. Right? So they realized that was a gift that was missing. They realized there had to be more of God than we, we were getting. So he begins preaching in Topeka, Kansas, about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, and the evidence of that being speaking in tongues. In 1901, he realizes it's missing. 1901. And people start getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. People start speaking in tongues. and they're, A lot of people are confused because when God gives you that gift that you've never seen, it looks different. And just as it was in the Bible, many of them were speaking foreign languages. Now, whenever you hear people, there's prominent pastors in America would say that that's a strange fire and it shouldn't happen. And, and they use Charles Parham's uh, revival to speak negatively about speaking in tongues and the revival because people went from that revival overseas to do missions trips thinking because they were speaking in tongues, people would understand them and they can do mission trips without actually learning a language. That's laziness, right? When God fills us with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean we can be lazy. We still got to do our part. We still got to pursue what he's calling us to do, right? If, if I get baptized in the Holy Spirit and then I'm like, you know what? I want to start an orphanage and I go into somebody's school and I think the orphanage is going to just kick up, it's probably not. I got work to do. Holy Spirit wants to use me. So people are going to mis-teach a lot of the stuff um, that was happening in that day as being a strange fire. But what did happen from the Topeka, Kansas thing was is there were people baptized in the Holy Spirit, and everybody in America that heard about it wanted it. Not everybody. Many people in America that heard about it wanted it. So people all over America start praying for more. God, if there's more, revive us. God, if there's more, revive us. There's a man in 1870 that was born. And this can be a lot of history at first, but if you listen to me, it gets so exciting. If you listen, like, Holy Spirit's going to well up in you. And it, uh, man, there's been some powerful stuff God can do. 1870, a man by name William Seymour is born. William Seymour is different than Charles Parham. William Seymour is a black man born to former slaves. In 1870, how many of you know that's not your ideal person to have revival through? He, went, he starts being raised up. His parents take him through about every kind of church he can be in. Started out with Catholicism, and then they had a, a 
Baptist church, Methodist church, different things. And, and he's raising up in these things, and he starts realizing God had a calling on his life to preach. But he wouldn't answer it. He said, I don't know. He's like, I, I don't really want to do that. And then he gets smallpox. Loses the sight in one of his eye, and I think it's something like 30%, 25 or 30% of the people who got smallpox in that time period died from it. And he loses sight in his eye, he gets these scars on his face, and he thinks it's God dealing with him because he wouldn't answer the call to ministry. I don't believe God put that upon him, but God definitely used it to open his eyes. Right? So he starts seeking the Lord. He was from Louisiana, and he moves to Mississippi, and he ends up in Indianapolis at a Bible school. And while in Indianapolis at a Bible school, he gets called to preach in Cincinnati. While in Cincinnati, he learns about the Topeka uh, outpouring, of the Topeka revival, and he realizes there's something we're missing. He wants the Lord. And he realizes there's something missing, so he goes down to Houston, where Charles Parham is preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. And I know when you hear that, it's like so many people are like, don't preach the evidence of speaking in tongues because it weirds people out. And they don't always agree with it. But that's what Charles Parham was preaching. And that's what William Seymour was seeking. Now, this is in 1904, I believe is when he goes there. No, 1905. 1905, he goes to Houston, Texas. Black man. One-eyed black man, which is probably gets him looked at even weirder. Goes into an all-white school and says, Hey, I want to learn about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. Charles Parham says, I can't allow you in my classroom. Because you're not white. But he thought, he thought Charles, or that William Seymour was the most humble man he'd ever met. And he really liked him. Now, obviously, there's still a little racism there, but he understood there was something different about William Seymour. So he let William Seymour sit outside of his classroom with the door open and listen to the teachings. How many of you would be offended if he said, you can't come in my classroom, but you can sit outside my door? Most of us have been like, forget that. I don't want nothing to do with it. But he was seeking so much that he said, I'll do it. And he sat outside of that door, and within three or four weeks, Parham is using him to preach revival to the black congregations. It only took him three or four weeks because he had that desire, that longing for, for what God was doing. He'd already got the message. He already understood there was more, and he so badly wanted it. Okay, so I'm going to back up a little bit. Frank Bartleman is in L.A., right? And I told you, it's going to be a lot of history real quick, and it can be long, but if you listen to me, it's what we need. Frank Bartleman's in L.A. longing for revival, longing for what he heard happen well, what everybody was looking for at the time, and then he hears of what happens in Topeka, Kansas, and he can't stop praying. 
He can't stop praying. He's longing for it. He said, God, bring that same revival to L.A. God, we need that. I long for that. I want that. And he was so much, and he was a writer. And he was so much longing for this outpouring, longing for this revival that he forgot to eat. He wouldn't leave his prayer room for days. His family thought he was crazy. He later writes that he was crazy, but he was crazy for more of the Lord. But he longed for it so much that he couldn't stop. Like, he could not get out of the presence of God because he wanted more. I don't know if I've ever had that kind of longing for God, that I would not leave for nothing. Like, he forgot. Like, it wasn't even like, wasn't even like oh, I'll just stay over here. He was just longing so much that he even forgot what was even going on in the world. Not always healthy. God works on that later on, I'm sure. But that's what he is doing. And then he hears about the Welsh revival, which is Evan Roberts, happens in 1904 in Wales. And you're thinking, Evan Roberts must be a great preacher. Evan Roberts was a uh, coal miner. Evan Roberts was only 26 years old. And he leads this great revival. The difference in Evan Roberts was when Evan Roberts was 13 years old, 13 years old. There ain't nobody in here that old. Everybody in here is way older. Even Sean, he's even older than 13. Oh, no, we're not. We got one there. She's young enough to do it. He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. 13 years old. Has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And you're like, what is account? Well, we all have encounters with Jesus Christ. Not like this. He had a, he had a Paul-type Encounter with Jesus Christ. 13 years old, from 1 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the morning, for six weeks straight, he's being woken up in the middle of the night, even though he actually wasn't awake. He's being woken up, and God is doing, or Jesus is speaking things to him. And he said he can't explain what happened, except for it was a Paul-like moment. His brother thought he was sick, so he'd hold him all night long, because he didn't understand what was going on until a couple days later when he explained, Jesus is waking me up. And he's like, you're not awake, you're still asleep. But he thought he was awake. So from that moment, for 13 years, every single day he prayed for revival. Every single day. And he would dedicate time to it. And as a coal miner, eventually he stopped becoming a coal or being a coal miner because he knew he needed to de- dedicate himself to this. And he dedicated his life to more, to more, to more. And at 26 years old, he's preaching. And he's at a church, he's, a, he's the youth pastor pretty much is what he was. And the pastor's asking people to come up and give a testimony of what's going on, and nobody could give a good testimony except a little girl who was about eight years old. Eight years old. She stands up as emotional as emotional can get, and she says, I love Jesus Christ with all of my heart. And she meant it. And everybody in that church just starts crying out to the Lord. And revival falls upon that place because finally there was a heart of a child longing for more of Jesus Christ. And Evan Roberts got to lead that for a couple years. Well, Frank Bartleman wanted that. He longed for that very thing in his community. Like I said, he wasn't even eating. He wanted it so bad. 
How, how many of you know Jesus has plans, God has plans, but we don't even fathom until afterwards when you get to look back at it, right? So he's longing for this, so he writes to Evan Roberts and says, hey, how did that happen? How do we get revival here in L.A.? And Evan Roberts writes him back and he says, Congregate the people who are willing to make a total surrender. That's not like people are willing to make time for Jesus, not like people who will make a prayer time or people who will you know, do some stuff. People are willing to make a total surrender. If we want to change this nation, we need people who will make a total surrender. Not like give part of our life to Jesus. Not like, man, you know, when I go home, I, I need that time. I need that break. I need that, that peace. I need, no, a total surrender. Give it all to God. He said, find some people who are congregate, or congregate to people who are willing for a total surrender. Pray and wait. Believe God's promises. Hold daily meetings. May God bless you in my earnest prayers. That's what he wrote back. So they start having prayer meetings. They start having prayer meetings in L.A. And the prayer meetings they started happen, having did not look like Charles Parham's prayer meetings. There were black people, white people, rich people, poor people, pastors, lay people. There were all kinds of people in these prayer meetings. They're having them all around the city. But the core group always met at one place, 214 Bonnie Bray. 214 Bonnie Bray, that, that's where it happens, 214 Bonnie Bray. There's another lady in that congregation named uh, Neely Terry, and Neely Terry and some people, some of the congregants in that prayer group, start a church and they hear about Charles Parham having classes in Houston, Texas. See, it all comes together. They're having classes in Houston, Texas, and they want a pastor who can lead them to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evident by speaking in tongues. That's what they want, right? Now... Frank Bartleman already changed the way they prayed. He no longer wanted the revival they had in Wells. He now wanted a new Pentecost, just like was in Acts 2. He said, we don't want what somebody else has. We want new. We want new. We want a fresh thing. We don't want what everybody else has, right? Because God don't do what he's doing somewhere else. He does something new. And when we think about revival, we need to think about Pressing into God and let him do what he's going to do. So she goes to Houston, Texas. And I believe that's in 1906. Yeah, 1906. She goes to Houston, Texas. She sits in a uh, preaching, segregated for black people. Right? Obviously, William Seymour's preaching. Because that's what God does. We see more preaches. She leaves there wanting the Holy Spirit more than she ever wanted. She goes back. She explains to her people that, hey, 
our, to our church, and she says, hey, there's a man preaching this very thing in L.A. I think he's to be our pastor. Like I said, God has a different plan than we usually understand. They send money to William Seymour and ask him to become their pastor. He catches a train and goes to L.A. in February of 1906. He gets there, gets off the train, goes into the church. He preaches a message about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, revival with evidence of speaking in tongues. He walks out, he goes back, and whenever he comes back later on for the evening service, there's chains and padlocks on the door, and they didn't want anything to do with what he had to preach. They had locked him out. Nope, not what we wanted. They wanted the revival. They wanted the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They did not want these tongues. They thought it was weird. So they locked him out. So there's a couple who bring him into their house. Edward Lee and his wife bring... William Seymour into their house and said, hey, why don't you stay with us? And they begin praying together. Edward Lee and William Seymour are praying together daily. William Seymour is spending five to seven hours a day praying. Edward Lee would go to his job as a janitor bank, come home and pray with him. They were seeking, right? There is a group... At 214 Bonnie Bray, who hear the dedication of William Seymour's prayer life. And they've been praying, but they needed a leader to lead them in prayer. So they asked William Seymour to become the leader of this prayer group. And he does. He starts leading this group, which by chance also has Frank Bartleman in it, who's been praying for such a thing for a long time. There's a lot of other leaders that were in there, a lot of big-name people who are in this. But Edward Lee also uh, is a part of that group. The family's name was Richard and uh, Ruth and Richard Asbury, who owned a home where this prayer group would meet. On April 9th, things begin to change. William Seymour is laying hands on Edward Lee, the guy whose house he's staying at, and he's praying over him. And Edward Lee starts speaking in tongues. He received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But not only did Edward Lee, who had hands laying on him, start speaking in tongues, Jenny Moore, a lady who was sitting over by herself seeking the Lord, which later becomes William Seymour's wife, also begins speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit just starts pouring himself out. How many of you know when the Holy Spirit doesn't move, he doesn't just do a small move? Jenny Moore gets up and she starts playing the piano, even though she didn't know how to play the piano. From that moment late on, she is now their piano player. Never learned how to play the piano, and she's singing in tongues. Because that's what God does when you seek God and you devote yourself to God. If you remember what Evan uh, Roberts said, was he said, find people who are dedicated, who surrender themselves. Find people who will surrender everything. They'd found it. They'd found people who would surrender everything. And think like, yeah, that's good, we'll all do that. 
Let me tell you some of the stuff that starts happening in this moment. Three days later, by the way, William Seymour finally receives a baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues, but he wasn't the first. And I will tell you, we're going to talk about a few more revivals. I'm going to try to make it somewhat quick, but it's never the people leading that the outpouring starts through. Right? It's never those people. It's the ones who congregate and seek fully, fully surrender. Because how I many of you know if, if William Seymour would have been the first one baptized in the Holy Spirit, they would have been like, yeah, he's the leader. Of course he should have. But when God moves through the people that are most unlikely, that's huge. So if Pastor Chad gets up here and he's like, oh, I feel revival like last week, God's speaking through him, you guys can look at him and be like, yeah, you're our leader, you should. But God wants to do more than that through you, so everybody else in the world wants that. So they start seeing things happening. Within a couple days after that, word is just shot around the city. And within three days, there's multiple hundreds of people gathering for this prayer group. So much that they can no longer meet inside, he is preaching and praying from outside on a, step, on a porch. And so many people are on the porch that it collapses, and they're all out in the yards and everything like that. And one thing that ends up happening is the city has to come because they're shut down the streets because people are standing in the streets. It becomes unsafe, and they say, hey, you guys got to find somewhere else to meet. Yet again, God's pretty awesome, so God says, hey, down on 312 Azusa Street, there's a stable, an old stable. Anybody ever heard of God coming in a stable? Kind of interesting, ain't it? There's an old stable down on 312 Azusa Street. I want you to get it. The only thing is, he's been praying five to seven hours a day, sometimes longer, Seeking the Lord, and he doesn't have a job because the job he was supposed to have when he came, they locked the door on it, so he has no money. So how do you get money as a black man in 1906 for a building that probably costs way more than you can ever get? You pray, right? God said, hey, I got a building for you. He's moved by the Holy Spirit. I need you to go to Pasadena. No, it wasn't Pasadena. Yeah, I think it was Pasadena. That's in California, right? Yeah, Pasadena. He goes to Pasadena. At night, there's a curfew for black people in L.A. God said, I don't care. Go to Pasadena. At night, a black man rides a train into Pasadena, California. He's led to an apartment where women are having a prayer meeting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. White women. Black man, middle of the night, on a bus or on a train, while there's a curfew, and he walks up the stairs of this apartment that he's God led to. Knocks on the door, and they say, yes. And he said, are you guys in here praying for revival? And he said, yes, we are. And he goes, I am that man that's going to preach that revival. He goes in and he preaches. They take an offering and that very money was enough to get the building that he needed. Not only that, he now had his workers to come and work. 
Some of those ladies are praying for healing when people start coming in. They all get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Azusa Street becomes this great revival. Thousands upon thousands of people in there. People are coming from all over the world to see this, right? William Seymour, led by the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't, some things you only do led by the Holy Spirit. William Seymour, God told him, he said, whenever you come out, when you come out for these services, and he had three services, he said, when you come out for these services, I want you to put a little box, it was like a wooden shoe box, I want you to put it on your head and you start praying. How I many you know you look like a fool when you do that? He didn't care. That's what he did. Three services a day, and he would come down and he'd put that on his head and he'd pray and he would pray and he'd pray and he'd pray and he'd pray, and he'd pray until God gave him a word to say to somebody or speak. And he would, at times, sit there with that box on his head. He would take the box off and there would be like, I mean, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit's moving, people needing healing show up. So there may be like a whole spot of cots where people are uh, crippled or missing limbs or things like that. And they would have wheelchairs and he would just take the box off his head, led by the Holy Spirit. Now, mind you, led by the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus only did what he saw the Father in heaven doing. He saw what God was doing. He would take the box off and he'd point and he'd say, you're all healed. And they would all get up. And people would start running around the building because they'd never walked or they hadn't walked in years. And it wasn't just like one time, it was multiple times. He starts having people come in. There's a girl, a 17-year-old girl. Uh, they called her Sister Carrie. A lady came in. She had walked in on her husband having an affair, which you're already thinking like, man, that girl needs help because that's a rough time. But she gets in a fight with the mistress. The mistress cuts her ear off. She wraps it in a bandage and doesn't go to the hospital. She goes to 312 Azusa Street because people are getting healed there. She walks in and this little 17-year-old girl... Sister Carrie, who's always praying over people for healing, comes in. She tells her the story. She unwraps her, or she she touches her ear, unwraps it, and she notices there's just nothing there. So she touches it again, and she says, "In Jesus' name, you are healed." And the ear grows back. That stuff just happened. That stuff just happened. Arms were growing back. Legs were growing back. This stuff is documented by historians, by people who didn't even agree with the movement because they thought it was weird, were documenting this. This is a great thing about a, a true revival is God brings the uh, critics in to write about it. So nobody can deny it actually happened. And there was a lot of critics. There were so many of those things. 7,000 churches were birthed out of this movement in Zuzu Street, led by a black man who was the most unlikely person to do so. 7,000 in America, 2,000 overseas. We would not have a church today if it wasn't for Azusa Street. Because Pentecost came out of Azusa Street. Simply as a guy came out of Azusa Street. The Church of Christ came out of Zusa Street. So many different denominations that believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evident by speaking in tongues, came out of that movement. We wouldn't be here without it. It all stemmed from people dedicating themselves to God, surrendering fully to God. They didn't want the gifts. 
They weren't asking for God to do a, a great outpouring of miracles like we often want because they didn't even know it was possible. They just knew there was more. And we don't know what's possible here if we just want more. Right? And there's a lot of other revivals. You start seeing the uh, post-World War II awakening with uh, Bill Bright and Billy Graham, and you have the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, which where the whole thought process for the hippie Jesus came out of, but it was actually a true movement where people realized they need Jesus. They needed him. And then all the way into the 90s, how many of you know in the 90s there was a lot of good revival going on in our nation? You had the Toronto Revival, you had the Brownsville Revival, you had Promise Keepers starting up, you had other small revivals throughout the nation that I didn't even know were going on, but they were. And that started actually out of a... John and Carol Arnett were the ones who were the pastors of the church where the Toronto Revival happened. They knew there was so much more than they had ever seen. They knew it. They knew that they needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They knew that God wanted to do more in them. Not just their church, in them. And they knew there had to be more. So they start praying. They start longing and just dedicating their lives to prayer. They actually... In 1992, in September, they were at this service in Toronto where an evangelist was speaking about the revivals and speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And John would tell you that is the day that he fell in love with Jesus Christ. Right? Not just that he was following Jesus Christ or he believed in Jesus Christ. He fell in love with him. Not only did he believe Jesus loved him, but now he had this overall longing, this love. And what did Jesus say earlier? If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you keep my words. Well, that's what happened to him as he was so on fire. I want more, right? He was so powerfully touched by the Spirit. He said to God, that's what we want, Lord. And as we prayed, prayed for God's direction, we felt him say, if you're serious... I want you to do two things. Commit your mornings to prayer and interact with others who are anointed. So it goes back to the same thing Evan Roberts said. Find people who are completely willing to surrender to Christ and gather together and pray. Completely surrendered. Find other anointed who are surrendering. If you're serious. If you're serious, you will seek more of Christ. If you are serious. If we are serious, we will seek way more. So they start this service for uh, in the mornings. Every single morning they would do a prayer group where they would pray and worship and all that. And it came to a point where all they really cared about was praying. And they seek the Lord. And everybody who attended that fell in love with Jesus Christ all over again. So they go to a, uh, they hear about a revival in Argentina. And I don't remember the name of the guy. Pastor Chad can tell you later he actually remembers the guy's name. Uh, it's a Hispanic guy, obviously, because it's in Argentina. And while there, Carol receives a baptism of the Holy Spirit. She receives what she calls the touch of the Holy Spirit. And John wanted it. But he just couldn't do it. 
And the guy comes up to him and he says, uh, he says, do you want this? And he said, I do. And the guy starts praying over him and he feels something but not fully what, he, what everybody else was feeling. And he said, I felt like Jesus was speaking to me. And he said, for goodness sake, will you take this? Take it, it's yours. You know, when Jesus got to speak that bluntly with you, you probably should just take what he's trying to give you. And he's trying to give us more, and he's trying to give us more, and he's trying to give us more, but we won't take it because we won't surrender our lives to him. And he said, I received more of the Holy Spirit's anointing and power by faith. And his faith how it had to allow that. In, in January 20th, 1994, they're having a prayer meeting at their church. Anybody remember how many people were at Pentecost? Anybody? Day of Pentecost? Huh? It's 120. 120 people gather in Toronto. There hasn't been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit majorly in America for quite a while. So 120 people are at this meeting, never thinking about how many people are at the meeting, and they're seeking and they're praying. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just comes and pours Himself upon all 120 people. People are falling out. People are speaking in tongues. People are shaking. All kinds of things are happening. And John looks at his buddy Randy Clark, who was also in Argentina, who's a pastor in St. Louis, and he says, I've never seen anything like this. Have you? And Randy says, I have not, but I know it's of the Lord. Right? God started doing something there that he didn't even do in, in Azusa Street. It looked different. So we have that, and then you go to Brownsville. Brownsville has a pastor who had been in the Evansville area. Uh, John Kilpatrick. Kilpatrick starts hearing of these revivals. He wants more, he wants more, he wants more. They're praying. They start dedicating a service to nothing but praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. His wife goes to the Toronto Revival, gets touched by the Holy Spirit, as they would call it in that time period, received the Holy Spirit, came back and told him there's so much more than what we have. And he longed for it. His friend Steve Hill, who's an evangelist, is in Argentina, gets touched by the Holy Spirit just like the Arnett's did. And he's going around to all these places where he's seeing movements of the Holy Spirit. He's in England when the Holy Spirit does this great movement. He comes back to the United States in 1994. No, 1995. June of 1995, and he's telling his friend, John Kilpatrick, about it. He said, you will not believe it. And they're at dinner. Him, his wife, and Steve Hill are at dinner. And his wife and Steve Hill are talking about how powerful this touch of the Holy Spirit is, how amazing everything is, right? And here's John Kilpatrick, like, I've been praying for this for years. Why ain't I been touched? And starting to get mad because he hasn't been touched by the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think we should want it that bad that it starts 
really getting to us that we have not been touched by the Holy Spirit, right? Kilpatrick's mom had died a few weeks before, so he's already hurting. They're sitting here talking about this like, man, you need this, you need this. Well, a couple months before, he actually went to Toronto so he could receive this touching. He starts having heart problems, can't make it to Toronto, so he never got to go to Toronto like his wife did, right? So guy's mad. I want more. Why am I not getting it and everybody else is? So that night he says, hey, he said, Steve, you're preaching in the morning. Steve said, hey, man, it's Father's Day tomorrow morning. I can't do that. He's like, no pastor gives up the, the uh, pulpit on a, on a Father's Day thing. You know, holidays are big for pastors. That's when they get to do those awesome messages and people come to the altar and things happen. And he said, I can't do it. I don't want to preach tomorrow. He was so heartbroke, he couldn't even preach. Been praying about it, been leading prayer groups about this, been longing for this whole thing, and even their worship leader was longing for it, and he wasn't even there when this happens. Father's Day, 1995, Steve Hill gets up and he starts preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Evidence speaking tongues. God has so much more. We need to surrender, we need to surrender, we need to surrender. And he keeps saying over and over, hey, here in a minute, I'm going to have an altar call, and you're going to come forward, and, I'm going to, and God's going to pour out a spirit. And then he goes on talking, and he says again, here in a minute, I'm going to have an altar call, and you're going to come forward, and God's going to t- pour out his Holy Spirit. And then he keeps saying it. And finally, Kilpatrick's like, hey, just do it, man. I'm tired of hearing about it. Right? Because he's mad. He wanted it. He's like, just do it. And finally, he has this altar call, and thousands rush the altar. Thousands. Not one, not 20, not 100, but over 1,000 people come down there. And he just starts laying on hands on people and praying, and people are falling out. Now Kilpatrick's really mad. He goes, what is going on here? Right? Because it didn't happen through him. He wanted it. He got up to go down and help, not because he was happy about it or he wanted to be a part of it, because he felt like he was obligated as a pastor of that church to go down and help. Didn't even want to do it. And as he's on his way down, he starts getting all weary-legged and weird-looking. He feels like he's going to fall out. And uh, some of the leaders in church said, man, you okay? And he goes, just get me back on the stage. On his way back up stage, he falls out on the steps of the church, uh, of the um, stage, and he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. And most of us know what happens. There's all kinds of stuff that happens out there. Great revival comes out of that. People are coming from all over the world to want to go to that. And the Holy Spirit moves. And in every one of these revivals, people are being healed. You know, limbs are getting grown back. Things are happening that we don't see. Those three years for each one of them, there's a three-year period for each one of them that were major time periods where great things were happening, things that were bigger than what Jesus did. You know, Jesus would go heal one, as I said, or and sometimes multiple. William Seymour just pointed to a group and they all got healed because the Holy Spirit was moving. He was in God. He was seeing what God did. And if we would long for Christ in that way, if we would surrender in a way that we want Him more, not the gifts, if He never heals anybody in here and we get the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we get that connection and we get that oneness with God the way they did, that's what we want. We don't want to repeat of Brownsville. We don't want to repeat of Toronto. We don't want to repeat of Azusa Street. No matter how powerful those moments are, we don't want that. 
We want to be one with God. We want God the Father to be letting us in on what he's doing. We want Jesus Christ so close to us that he's speaking. We want the Holy Spirit to pour himself out upon all of us. All of us. And there's only a few ways that happens. And and in Acts 2, and I'm not going to go through it all because I'm sure I'm really late. But in Acts 2, we see it, and Jesus tells them to go up to the... uh, the upper room, and he says, hey, go up there and wait. Go up there and wait. And they dedicate themselves. They've already surrendered to Jesus. They've already had that encounter with him when he came back from the dead. And they've already, you know, they're already in love with Jesus. He even asked Peter, do you love me three times? And Peter said, I do. I do. You know I do. And he said, go up and wait. And there was a lot of them. I think there was like 500 people. And in the end, only 120 were waiting. They gave up. Because sometimes we can pursue something and we don't, if it don't go our way, we give up. But for those 120 that waited, we know tongues of fire came out. For those 120 that seeked more of God and listened to what Jesus told them to do, miracles start happening. But the most important thing is now they had the Holy Spirit within them. They were the first. The rest of us have seen stuff like this, and we're like, man, that is cool. They were the first. They didn't even know what was possible. But they waited, and they seeked. Some start leaving, and they're still seeking. And this was new for them, because you remember when Jesus got taken captive, they all scattered except for Peter, who denied him three times. This was new. This is them actually stopped doing what they were doing, and dedicating themselves fully and surrendering to what Christ had for them. Fully. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. Pastor Chad has talked about it. You know, he's, we have this prayer group open all the time now. Well, not all the time, but four to six. We've got nights dedicated on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, that Bob's in here leading the prayer group. He's starting, uh, he's starting Bible studies in here. We're starting to give you an opportunity to pursue the Lord even more than you ever had, but it takes us doing it. Brownsville Revival, whenever that happened, the things John Kilpatrick dedicated that revival to, he accredits it to dedication and prayer, to the teachings they were having, and the fact that they were taking communion together. Dedication to prayer, the teachings... And the teachings weren't just teachings. They were actually studying the Bible deeper than they ever had studied. Right? It was Dick Rubin starting to teach things that had never been taught. And if we would just separate ourselves for the Lord, dedicate ourselves completely to Him, surrender, saying, Lord, whatever you want. Right? Sometimes we're like, whatever you want, unless it's on Tuesday night when my show's on. Or we're like, eh, you know... There's some things I still want to do on my... I don't think God would mind that. What if you said, hey, I don't care what God would mind. I'm going to give it all to Him and let Him show me what He wants for me. Because oftentimes our thought process is, is, I'll give you most things, but I don't think this part's bad. Or I'll do whatever you want, but I like my time alone. 
right? George Whitfield died at like 50-some-odd years old because he said, hey, you know, I could rest right now and maybe live to an old age, or I can give everything I have right now and know I have perfect healing when I make it to heaven. So he actually... He worked and he worked. He did. He moved and he, he traveled around for this revival and he gave everything he possibly could to God. Everything. Did he die young? He did, but he gave it all to the Lord. And I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to surrender your heart and let him guide you. Let him move you. Surrender completely. Let go of your life. And you're like, I have. I, I said the sinner's prayer. I, I got something. You did. But Jesus said that's a start. Because if you love him, then you start doing his commands. If we are truly and 100% committed to the Lord, there will be an outpouring in this place never seen before. The world comes drawn to that. Do you understand, like, at Azusa Street in 1906, when that happened, it was word of mouth that got that out. Eventually they started newsletters and sent it all over to people that wanted the newsletters, but it was word of mouth that got that out there. People longed for it because they seen there's something going on there. There's something going on. They didn't have to send people out in the streets and tell them, hey, we got a revival going on over here, this nice little tent revival. They didn't have to do that because people long for the Holy Spirit. People are drawn to what God's doing, and if we're not a part of that, then they're not going to be drawn at all. It takes us being all in. It takes us surrendering completely. But if we don't do it, it won't happen. Pastor Chad can get all the, the golden nuggets he needs. He can, he can seek all he wants. He can get visions and all that, but it would just be one man longing for Christ and not a multitude. We can do it. We can completely surrender. If there's only a few of us, that's what it'll take, and we'll do that. But I don't want anybody left out of that. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to have Ryan come up. And uh, that's probably really long. I don't know. Yeah, a little bit. Not too bad. I'll get the lights, buddy. I'm going to pray here, and uh, We'll have an altar call if you need prayer, but mostly just pray where you're at. But if you need prayer, come on up and we'll pray with you. Uh, I think with everything Pastor Chad's been preaching lately, everything I'm hearing taught across America, with the return stuff and just so many people hearing from God that He wants to do so much more, I think it's time for us to just surrender. I think it's time for us to give it all to Him. Uh, we can have so much more. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I ask you today to, to surrender for that, to long for that, to be hungry for that. Because God has more for us. We're not orphaned, which tells us that He has that for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you uh, you would never abandon us. For those, Lord, that would be willing to surrender completely to you, Lord, 
to give all to you, to dedicate ourselves to you, Lord, you'd be willing to pour your Holy Spirit out upon us. You'd be willing to let us be in you and in the Father, and we'd be able to even see what the Father is doing. Holy Spirit, right now, I just ask that you would pour yourself out amongst people. Jesus, I ask that you'd be speaking to our hearts. God, help us to know what it is that's keeping us from being completely surrendered to you. Do a good work here today, Lord. stuck in this world. We're not stuck with what we see, Lord, but you have so much more, God. Help us be so dedicated to that, Lord. Help us to surrender completely. God, we know you want to honor that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.